Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 37, Come to the Lab, to find out about how an early chemical laboratory was set up. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. What we call a laboratory did not exist till the late 1500s. The word didn't even exist till then. First describing a place where an alchemist worked, in the 1580s in Latin, the word laboratorium comes from the Latin word laborare, to work. Therefore, a laboratory is just a workplace or workshop, and was a place where a craftsman would work, whether a glassmaker, carpenter, or alchemist labored. In the Renaissance, laboratories usually included a furnace for application of high heat, distillation apparatus, and maybe a sand bath or even fermenting dung in which mild heat was emitted. A laboratory wasn't necessarily a special room in a special building. It might have been in a kitchen with easy access to heat from a fireplace, or maybe an outbuilding in the yard. Such informal laboratories were relatively common up until 50 or 60 years ago, especially for children with chemistry sets. But in reality, a laboratory for chemical purposes is specifically set up for chemical work, and these kitchen settings weren't true laboratories. Such laboratories began to evolve with metallurgy in the 16th century, as evidenced by Agricola's 1556 book, De Re Metallica, we met a while back, but also in Lazarus Erker's 1574 book, Beschreibung aller für Nemisten mineralischen Erzt und Bergwerksarten. Description of Leading Ore Processing and Mining Methods, with carefully numbered drawings. By 1606, the German physician Andreas Libavus talked about a hypothetical chemical house in the second edition of his book Alchemia. The description with floor plan includes rooms for the chemist and assistant to live, a study, a stockroom for chemicals and equipment, and even different rooms for a variety of chemical procedures. Among these specialized rooms were an analytical room with assay furnaces and balances for weighing substances, a crystallization room with vats and tubs called the coagulatorium, a prep room, and a room for making medications, the pharmacy. Among the types of apparatus he recommended were steam baths and ash baths, water baths, distillation apparatus, sublimation apparatus. Glassware at this time generally included the retort, a glass or often copper globular vessel with a downward-pointing long neck, and the alembic, also a globular vessel plus a head or cap with downward spout like the retort and a bottle to catch the distilled product. We know of an actual laboratory from 1682 near Nuremberg in which a variety of furnaces were set around the outside walls of the building in a particular order. 
there was no table in the center of the room for students to take notes. In fact, it is quite possible that at this time there really was no table, and chemical operations were done right on the floor. To get chemicals to react, the furnace was a main component of laboratories during this era, whether in the winter providing welcome ambient warmth, or in the summer making an uncomfortable indoor situation even worse. By the 18th century, with the interest in gases growing, new equipment appeared. The pneumatic trough to catch and isolate gases was important, plus more equipment to store and combine gases. For the gentleman British chemist attempting to educate the family about the new wonders of natural philosophy, such equipment could be scaled down to a small tabletop. See, for example, Joseph Wright's paintings. For the French, the room remained large, but the dependence on the furnace for heat shrank. Instead, burning glasses often focused the sun's rays onto chemical samples, and the pneumatic trough grew in size. Berzelius, in the early 19th century, used only two kitchen-sized tables for his experiments, in contrast to the University of Leiden's laboratory, with a large table and a large pneumatic trough. Even so, the dependence on glassware persisted into the 19th century, and by the 19th century, piped natural gas began to appear in laboratories along with plumbing for water. The moral of the story so far, and will continue to be, whatever equipment a laboratory needs to do the research, it will have. Universities, though, are also devoted to teaching the next generation of researchers. Thus, education-based laboratories to educate students in laboratory techniques and observations developed a bit differently from a chemical workplace. By the 17th century, the lecture demonstration was already in place: a long table for equipment, an assistant, and special equipment. But at the time, the laboratory and lecture demonstration were essentially the same room. Joseph Black, during the Enlightenment, was particularly famous for his lecture demonstrations. At the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, in the 1830s, Robert Hare used a lecture hall with a long laboratory bench at the front, plus an entire laboratory behind the bench, where he did experiments outside of lecture time. The beginnings of dividing the lecture hall from laboratory began early in the 19th century. The Royal Institution, where Humphrey Davy and then Michael Faraday gave famous demonstrations, had a lecture hall divided from the laboratory by an archway. The laboratory was where they actually did their research. By the 1860s, new ideas about laboratories started changing their architecture. Initially in Germany and slowly across the rest of the world by 1900. If we have taken freshman chemistry laboratory at university, we've likely seen this laboratory style: rows of wooden benches containing storage units underneath, drawers just under the countertop, and racks for reagents and bottles raised up above the countertop. Plumbing piped in water and drained out to the sewage system. Sinks stood at the end of benches, but later were replaced by sinks scattered throughout the lab benches themselves. 
Along the walls were fume hoods for chemical reactions that gave off dangerous vapors. Some progressive laboratories had direct current electricity available from a large electrical battery. Natural gas was piped in as fuel for Bunsen burners, only just invented at this time, for heating reactions. The gas system thus ousted the need for furnaces in laboratories. Between the rows of benches was a wide aisle, something like a hospital room lined with beds. I did mention in earlier episodes that nationalism was a thing in the 19th century. So, while the German universities began adopting this modern style of laboratory, in the mid 1800s, the French were against German ideas. Think of the Franco Prussian War in 1870, for example. Instead, the French laboratories stuck to the traditional central table method till the 1890s, and likewise for Spain, Italy, and Portugal. England began to follow the new German style in the 1870s. America's laboratories had a single row of benches sticking out from a wall instead of a central aisle, plus removable bottle stands or no stands at all. Simultaneously with the new lab design, the architectural idea of an entire building devoted primarily to laboratory work appeared. Included in the structure were teaching laboratories I mentioned, plus research laboratories for students and professors. The building had at least one lecture hall and smaller classrooms, which came to be called recitation rooms in the USA. The building might have had specialized laboratories for a particular work, such as a dark room for spectroscopy, a room for explosive reactions, a stock room for chemical storage, and workroom for technicians. Toward the late 19th century, a chemical library appeared. The basement would have a central heating system, the battery for electrochemical reactions, and eventually electrical generators at the end of the century. Sometimes these palatial buildings would even have residences for the senior professor on staff and maybe a ballroom for entertainment. One specialized room that has vanished from our modern university chemistry building is the Chemical Museum. The Chemical Museum was a place for students to examine specimens like a geology museum has samples of different rocks. Chemical museums were still used in the early 20th century and as late as 1932 known at Brooklyn Polytechnic but then vanished by the 1950s. A vestige perhaps remains if you see a glass case in the main foyer with antique samples and apparatus but only as a quaint curiosity. Research laboratories for industrial purposes also began to appear in the 1860s starting in France and then Germany with the growth of the dye industry. Some of their characteristics originated in the metallurgists and pharmacists workshops of the 1500s. Much of their development lagged behind the academic laboratories, often being relegated to the back shed for usually they were used for quality assurance rather than research. An exception was the dye conglomerates in Germany with serious research programs running and in the USA Thomas Edison's pioneering chemical research laboratory which you can still see in the Thomas Edison National Historical Park in New Jersey. 
What about chemistry laboratories in elementary and high schools, primary and secondary education? They do exist, which in some ways is peculiar, because we all know and remember from personal experience how unreliable children are around dangerous and toxic substances. Firstly, primary or elementary schools, as a rule, don't have such laboratories. We encounter them only in middle or junior high school initially. Secondly, these laboratories developed at a time when people took far less notice of safety hazards, but their existence really owes to the fact that chemistry was believed in the 19th century to be best learned as a form of physical activity, a mental exercise. Back in those days, as we have already seen, the reasons for chemical reactions were largely unknown, so theoretical considerations were much less important. The existence of chemical reactions then was the main point, and clearly demonstrating these reactions and having students perform some basic techniques using rudimentary equipment was key. At first, if science was even taught, the lecture demonstration method was used. But during the mid 1800s, governments began spending money on schooling, and the old trivium and quadrivium of medieval education. Was widened to include modern topics. Thus, we see the onset of teaching about history, geography, and natural philosophy. So, practical work in chemistry was very important. How would these school-age labs look then? Clearly, they were modeled after those in higher education. Smaller students meant they couldn't reach the bottle racks on top of the benches. In many cases, the bench tops had to be lowered a bit, so there was not enough room for lockers under the benches. Plumbing was required, but adding gas lines became expensive, so that many schools didn't use Bunsen burners. Instead, small alcohol lamps became popular. In my personal reading of 1930s Soviet chemistry textbooks in Yiddish, even at that late date. Alcohol lamps were still actively used in Soviet high schools. As for ventilation, pre-1860s laboratories made do with windows and chimneys, but after this time, non-chemists got fed up with the stinks and the smells. So often, a lab was built on the roof, where all the noxious fumes could just float away. By the 1870s, even that wasn't enough, and so electric fans began to be installed. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Popular experiments in high schools and university settings for introductory chemistry labs included qualitative analysis of metal salts. I recall doing exactly this in such laboratory settings as a student. We used group analysis to determine what group of similarly reacting metals was in an unknown sample supplied by the teacher. 
To run these tests back in the late 19th century, you added certain reagents to get a precipitate or color change. If you were colorblind by my student days, the teacher often asked you to work with a trichromatic partner. Among those reagents added to the salt solutions 150 years ago was ammonia solution, sodium carbonate, and hydrochloric acid, but also hydrogen sulfide gas. H2S was a big problem because it's toxic, but it does have an instantly recognizable odor of rotting eggs. To generate H2S, you used an apparatus invented by Dutchman Peter Kip in 1844, now called the Kip's apparatus inside a fume hood. Made of glass, it has three globular vessels stacked on top of each other. By my era in introductory chemistry, there were no recognizable Kipps apparatuses in any lab that I recall. Another popular reaction run by students under supervision was the volumetric analysis of an acid or base. That is, determine as precisely as you can the concentration of sulfuric acid or sodium hydroxide. You use a burette, a precisely calibrated cylindrical tube with regular markings showing the volume of liquid, and added the liquid dropwise into an Erlenmeyer, also called a conical flask. In the flask was your unknown solution with an indicator, a dye that changes color at a very precise pH. Overall, the laboratory equipment up through the early 20th century was largely based on glassware and analytical balances. Analytical balances gradually improved through the Renaissance and modern eras. An 1821 handbook of analytical chemistry could distinguish 1 milligram with 10 grams of substance. Berzelius at that time used samples down to 5 milligrams. By a century later, microbalances could resolve differences of one thousandth of a milligram. A popular device from ancient and early Arab alchemical times, but rediscovered by Robert Boyle, was the areometer, which measures the density of liquids. It's a hollow cylinder with a lead weight at bottom to keep it vertical. How deep it is immersed in a liquid is related to the density of that liquid. In the 18th century, we heard about Kronstadt's blowpipe for analysis, but with Bunsen and Kirchhoff's new spectrometer, it began to fall out of use in the late 19th century. I've mentioned the burette, a calibrated cylinder with a valve at the bottom, but there's also the pipette, a glorified eyedropper that can give precise amounts because of calibration. Both of these were named by the French chemist. François Antoine Henri de Croisil, a contemporary of Lavoisier. The valve at the bottom of the burette was added in the 1850s by Carl Friedrich Mohr. As a chemist, if you mix a solution, you need to shake it somehow until the solution has its solvent and solutes all homogeneously mixed. The first automatic shaking device was invented by Gay Lussac in 1832. It consisted of a suspended bracket holding a platform for several solutions. Underneath, between the platform and benchtop, was a spring. Just push the platform with solution down, 
and the whole contraption bounces up and down for a while. We've already mentioned the spectroscope and photography to record elemental spectra dating from the mid-1850s. As for the ubiquitous glassware, many 18th century chemists involved with gases used glass globes with valves to contain their gases. If you visit the Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris, for example, you can see Lavoisier's own equipment, including large balances and glass globes. But as chemical reactions got more and more specialized through the early 19th century, chemists began to rely on custom-made glassware in which to run reactions. Glass has been generally regarded as inert to most reactions. Berzelius, whom we have mentioned so many times, invented the test tube in the 1820s. Michael Faraday involved glass blowers in his research. One of Faraday's books from 1827 is called Chemical Manipulation, which has a full spectrum of explanations on making and usage of small glass apparatuses. Glassware began to be manufactured and standardized in Germany in the 19th century. Flasks include the conical or Erlenmeyer flask from 1860 and the round bottom or Florence flask named for the Italian city. Beakers are cylindrical, generally squat glass vessels with a small beak or spout for pouring. Graduated cylinders are similar to beakers in that they are spouted but are tall and narrow with inscribed or printed lines to show the volume of liquid they contain. Let's not forget the simple stirring rod, a long glass rod used to stir solutions. An interesting glass apparatus is a desiccator, which is a large, heavy-walled vessel with a dome on top. Inside the desiccator is a chemical that absorbs water out of the air, so you put a sample into the desiccator to remove all water contaminating it. To seal the domed lid to the desiccator, a heavy grease is applied to the rim of the vessel. Often you will find ceramic apparatus in a lab, too. A common example is the Buchner funnel of glazed porcelain. This is a funnel shaped like a cylinder rather than a cone. At the base of the Buchner funnel is a perforated bottom. You place a disc of filter paper onto the perforated bottom and lay your wet sample over the paper. Then you place the Buchner funnel onto a sidearm conical flask and attach a vacuum hose to the sidearm. The vacuum hose pulls air and moisture out from under the filter paper and through the perforations and dries out your sample. These are only some of the bits and pieces of equipment that you might see in an early chemistry laboratory and are still the mainstay of modern lab equipment. In the 20th century, Electronics changed how chemists do their work, and we will return to that topic in a later episode. In our next episode, we return to the world of the atom, in particular isotopes. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.